How many of you have family Easter traditions? Things that you do just about every year. When I was growing up as a child, one of the traditions in my home was that my mother would take all the leftover hand, uh, Halloween candy and create Easter baskets. <clears throat> and uh, so each of us then would go around and look for our Easter basket. And I was the oldest, so mine was always someplace the highest because my two younger sisters would steal my candy if they found it first. And, and so we had this little celebration of the candy that we got. And, and then... Um, the beginning of school and Easter were the two times of the year it was okay to buy new clothes. And so, because we all know that Easter Sunday at church is a fashion show. And, and don't we all look good today? And then we recognized that there would be this great Easter dinner that we would have together. And they were always good on Sundays afternoons, but, but Easter was particularly uh, special for us. And Easter always, as a child for me, seemed to be like a one-day holiday. You know, you, it, it wasn't as good as Christmas because Christmas you prepared for for weeks. I mean, you would have a tree up for weeks. You would be shopping for weeks. You would have the music. For, Easter was kind of a, like a one-day thing. And, and it wasn't until I got to college into theology studies that I began to take the magnitude of Easter uh, on a little bit more of a, an added importance basis because I learned there that Easter really isn't a day. Easter is a season. It starts today and goes all the way through uh, the Sunday we celebrate, Pentecost Sunday. So for all of you who attend church on Easter, welcome to Easter season. We'll see you for the next seven weeks. <laughs> so rather than saying happy Easter to the, each other today, say happy Easter season. I read a story this week that in Denver, Colorado, a customer walked into a department store looking for gold crosses and, and asked the clerk, do you have any gold crosses for sale? And the clerk pulled them out and said, what kind would you like? I have plain ones and I have something with a person hanging on it. And, and the clerk looked at them and said, you what? Well, I have plain ones and then I have these others with, it looks like a little, there's a little person hanging on it. And the clerk asked, uh, the customer asked the clerk, do you not know who that is hanging on the, the cross, and the clerk did not know who the person on the cross was. We live in a time of increasing confusion about who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. We recognize today, and I would imagine most of us do, that Easter is the supreme religious moment of the year for us because the resurrection of Christ answers for us the deepest and most profound questions of mankind. It meets men and women underneath the surface. It's, it's, it's one of those times where in the times when we face the quietness and the questions that we think about and ponder and wonder about begin to bubble to the surface. And Easter is there to meet us on those days. And I would like it if you have your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 24. And thank you for praying for me this week. On Wednesday morning, I went to the doctor and discovered I had laryngitis and bronchitis, and he told me that I needed to sequester myself and not talk for four days. And I said, are you out of your mind? I said, I'm a preacher. And he says, if you have anything that you would like to say on Sunday, you'll follow my instructions. So I did. So I've got a lot to say today. <laughs> Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 1. On the very first day of the week, 
Very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared, and they went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all of the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Heavenly Father, on this Easter morning, as we begin to contemplate the questions that Jesus answered on Easter... I ask, Father, that you would, by the leading of your Holy Spirit, begin to open doors of our hearts that we may have kept closed. I ask that you would begin to speak into the depths of our hearts and minds some of the things that we have questioned and that as you bring answers to us, Lord, you will also reveal yourself as the Savior of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to address three questions this morning, and if you have a program, on the back side of the program, there's an outline for you to begin to take notes on if you would like. And the first question that I would like to address today is the question of doubt. The question of doubt. Men and women ask with great sincerity, how can I know which religion is the right one? And that's a fair question, because the average person today faces a supermarket of religions. The shelves are literally full of things that you can choose from. The only problem is that all the bottles have been poisoned except for one. And how can you be sure to find the one that is pure and right and that is safe and that will lead you to where you want to go? I believe that some of you are here today because in your spirit you are shopping for something that will bring satisfaction to your life and to your soul. You're looking for something that is real. I'm also certain that there are some of you here today that don't believe in the resurrection. It's just too hard for you to believe. Or at least you may be here today and you're saying, you know what? I'm here, but I'm just not sure. Perhaps you've been attending church for years. And you know that Easter is something that you do as a family. It's got some spiritual significance, but you've never been able to grasp the true meaning of it all because you've had questions. Or perhaps you're here today because you had a neighbor that took one of our invitations or a co-worker that came and handed it to you and said, if you'll go to church with me, we'll go out to lunch with you. And so you're here thinking, hey, I'm getting a free lunch out of this. How long are you going to be today? Maybe you're here today because you just feel in something inside that think there's more, there's more to religion than there's more to it than I've ever experienced before. And I want you to know that if any of these questions or conditions describe you, that you're in fairly good company today. 
In fact, there's a fairly significant issue in the scriptures and a feature in the, the gospel stories about the first Easter morning that often goes overlooked by the sermons that we preach. In fact, if you were to read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the resurrection, what you would discover is that when the women got to the tomb in each of those instances, never once did they find it empty, and each of them shout together, Hallelujah, it has finally happened. Never once do you find in Scripture where they said, Praise God, it's just like he said. In fact, never once do you find in Scripture when they got there and said, The tomb is empty, this is exactly what I expected to happen today. Not once, not once. In fact, as the passage we read demonstrates to us, it's loaded with questions. Women were wondering when they got there why the stone was rolled away. The angels were wondering why the ladies were showing up to find a living Jesus in a cemetery. The disciples, after the women came back and told them all the good news, they looked at those women, and the scripture literally uses the term, why are you talking nonsense? This is the disciples we're talking about. And then there's Peter, who in his ADHD, jumps up from where he's at, runs out the door, gets to the cemetery, sticks his head in, recognizes that the tomb is empty, but notices long enough that at least Jesus had folded his linen. Teenagers take note of that. And then the Bible says this great man of God walks out of that, and it says he wondered what happened. It appears the natural response to the word or to word of the resurrection is doubt and fear and bewilderment. And we wonder, how come? I would suggest to you two reasons. First, the resurrection is quite literally absolutely incredible. It is incredible. That is, it's not easily believed. The resurrection isn't simply the claim that Jesus' body is resuscitated. It is the claim that God entered human history and created a brand new reality altogether. Resurrection breaks all the natural rules. Further, the resurrection of Jesus threatens power as we know it. We understand today, as you think about it, that empires exist. Powers and authorities exist and get people to do what they want them to do by threatening that if you don't, out of fear, I will take your life from you. And so when this had happened to Jesus, when one of their victims dies and then by his own power comes back, well, it kind of throws out the whole fear enterprise thing. It takes away the whole fear of death if they don't stay dead after we've threatened them. Secondly, I think many have misunderstood the nature of religious faith. Biblical author, authors believe that faith and doubt are actually woven closer together than one might imagine. Your doubt, your questions, even downright skepticism, they aren't the opposite of faith. In fact, they are the essential ingredient that leads one to faith. Let me explain. Sometimes the doubt that you have inside, as you're reading the Word of God or as you're experiencing things in Christ, leads you to investigate. 
And as you investigate, if you are investigating Jesus out of spiritual curiosity, I want you to know that out of your curiosity, Jesus will meet you where you're at, and he will reveal himself to you. Peter's curiosity caused him to investigate, that led him to wonder what had happened, and he began to investigate from there. So perhaps all of the questions common at this time of the year about if the resurrection really happened or how or why are God's way of sparking within you a desire to investigate his claims so that he can meet you at your questions and demonstrate to you the reality of his love for you. As you investigate the claims of all of the religions seeking the one that is true and pure that will lead you to a life and eternity in heaven, between Christianity and all of the other religions of the world, if you will open up your heart to Jesus out of spiritual curiosity, you will meet the Savior of the world. C.S. Lewis spent years as a determined atheist. Lewis' long journey away from faith and then back to faith began when his mother died from cancer when he was just a boy. He was disillusioned that God would not heal his mother. And so by his own description of himself, he said he set on a path toward full-bodied rationalism and atheism. After experiencing this for a few years, he was in a conversation with what would have been the premier atheist of his day in the mid-1920s, and his name was T.D. Weldon. And Weldon and Lewis were sitting alone in a room together, and Lewis began to ask him questions as to how he became an atheist and what he was founding all of his decisions upon, and they begin to talk about the Gospels. And Lewis, who described Weldon as the hardest boiled of all the atheists I ever knew, when the Gospel question came up, Weldon said this to him, Lewis, in all of my research that I've done on the evidence of the historicity of the Gospels, I have to tell you, all of it is surprisingly authentic and good. He says, all that stuff about the dying God, it looks as if it really happened once. C.S. Lewis said, if he, the cynic of cynics, and the toughest of the toughs was not safe in his atheism, then where could I turn? While pursuing a path of spiritual curiosity, Jesus revealed himself to Lewis, and after finally admitting after all of his research that Jesus really existed and that he was raised from the dead, he said, I, with all of the evidence I had, had to fall upon my knees, and he describes his salvation experience this way. I became the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. But when you compare the claims of Christ to the claims of the rest of the religions of the world, there's one fundamental difference. There's one fact that sets Christianity forever apart from the other religions, and this is it. Muhammad died on June the 8th, 632, and is buried at Green Dome, Medina, Saudi Arabia. Buddha died in 483 BC at the age of 80 years old in the city of Kusinara, India. He was cremated, and a monument sits where his ashes are buried to this day. Confucius died in 479 B.C. and is buried in Khufu, China. Moses, the father of the Abrahamic religions, died in 1407 B.C. on Mount Nebo in Jordan. Jesus Christ 
died by crucifixion and was buried in a borrowed tomb, but rose from the dead, self-authenticating himself as the one true deity and the one true God. And today, if you go to his tomb, it's empty. Jesus Christ is the one true God because he's the God of the empty tomb. The resurrection answers the question of doubt. That leads us to the question of guilt. Vicki Kraft, as an eight-year-old girl, was going through the heartbreak of recently having lost her father. She said, my mother and sisters had one possession of, of dad's that, that we held most special, and it was a pocket watch that he had kept. And somehow the glass on the top of the watch had come off, and so the watch and the glass were laying by itself on the counter, and her mother told all the girls, do not touch this watch so that I can go and get it fixed. Well, as most kids are, the curiosity got the best of her. She picked up that watch, and she began to run her fingers and moving the hands of that watch, and as she did so, she broke one of them. She quickly put the watch back on the counter and covered it up with other stuff and tried to avoid her mother. Her mother came home and discovered what had happened and quickly addressed her, and she said, did you touch your daddy's watch? And before she could even stop herself, she quickly lied and said, no. And then she said instantly, guilt began to flood my soul. She says it was worse than I had ever imagined. She said not only had I broken the watch, I had now lied about it. Eventually, she decided that she would rather take the punishment than live with those awful guilt feelings. And she went to her mom and confessed. She said, that spanking is the only one that I remember from my childhood. And my mother told me that the severity of it had to do more with my lies than the damaged goods. Guilt is a universal experience. Everybody at some time or another has had the bad feeling of not doing what we ought to have done or have doing something that we ought not to have done. But listen closely. No one has ever successfully erased the sense of right and wrong that God writes on every human soul. There are different ways that people that are without Christ try to deal with their guilt. There's the intellectual way, there's the physical way, and then there's the religious way. The intellectual way is to try to talk yourself into it and then teach others that Guilt is owed to unrealistic expectations that we put on ourselves. So if you'll just lower your expectations of your own virtue, then you won't have to deal with the guilt because you didn't think you were that good anyway. The other approach is to address the moral principles that we feel written on our heart and say, because they are from such an old-fashioned, puritanical age, they no longer exist today. And so if you'll just walk out of the dark ages into the age in which we live, then you will no longer take, uh, feel guilty about it, and that will take care of itself. The second way that people deal with guilt without Christ is the physical way of dealing with it. Many people try to cover the pangs that they feel inside with alcohol and drugs, something that somehow they hope will allow them to escape what they are feeling on the inside just for a little while. Many people say, well, it was, it was the stress that drove me to drink, or it was the loneliness that drove me to drink. I'm, I'm convinced that there is deep-seated guilt in many who are just trying to find a way out. Of course, alcohol and drugs are not the only uh, physical way of dealing with it. There are other people who can't stand silence and can't stand to be alone. 
So what they do is they fill their days and nights with games and hobbies and sports. And some people keep the television on all day long so that there's a constant barrage of sight and sounds that keeps their mind busy, that guards them from the guilt that they feel when they find themselves in silence and cannot escape the inner voice. But the oldest tactic for avoiding the misery of guilt is religion. And this tactic may be the most deceptive because it comes closest to the truth. It recognizes that when the intellectual and the physical strategies do not work within us, what it, they, they recognize what it ignores, and that's that the ultimate cause of guilt is that there is a righteous God whose will for his creatures has been ignored or defied. It recognizes that guilt in the human soul is the silent conviction of a God who wants to draw you home. And the means that religion has developed to try to deal with the guilt issue is by trying to tell you that there is a ways that you can appease God with your good works or religious ritual. Religious people know that they owe God a great debt for their disobedience. But they often make the terrible mistake of thinking that they can pay it back somehow. If I just do enough that's good, it will counterweight all that I've done that is bad. Or if I'm just faithful enough to the religious duties, God will look favorable. I believe religious rituals leave an emptiness and an insecurity in your heart because you never know if you've done enough. Any human created way of dealing with guilt will ultimately be found to be inauthentic because if it's something we can produce, then we don't need Jesus. And Jesus says we need him. I declare to you this morning that Easter is the best news in all the world as it relates to our guilt. Easter declares that God, on his own initiative, has undertaken the only plan that's possible to redeem you and die. There's a wonderful passage of scripture that's found in Romans chapter 3 in verses 19 through 28, and I just want to share it with you and then speak about what each of it means to us. Verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In other words, this means that every person in this room today will be held directly accountable to God, and you will have to give him an account someday for your life. If you have been trying to appease your guilt on your own or through other methods, this should be sobering at the least or frightening at the most. That no matter how virtuous we appear, we are accountable to God and there will come a reckoning for everything that we have done and said and thought and felt. The universal problem of guilt is not just a problem of how to feel better. The universal problem of guilt is how do we get right with God again? Verse 20 says, therefore... No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We recognize the resulting relationship of human guilt and divine indignation cannot be made right by things that we can do. 
There's no possible way that the worldly methods intended to lessen the misery of our guilt will ever help us because they will all fail sooner or later because they ignore the main point and the problem of human existence, and it's this. We are all guilty before God. It is his law that we have broken. It is his glory from which we have fallen so short. And every person in the world is either personally accountable to God or will meet him someday either guilty and condemned or acquitted and destined for joy. Verses 21 through 24 state, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Here is the great, great news of Easter. God decided to do something about your guilt when you couldn't do it on your own. And he's undertaken a plan by which he would acquit you. And I want to stress, this is the love of God that he has not left us alone to live with our guilt forever. But he has chosen to come after us. And he didn't say to you, I'm going to wait till you got it all together. As soon as you clean yourself up a little bit, as soon as you start making your way toward me, you know, when, when I can stand the stench of your sin, maybe then I'll do He said, while you were yet sinners, while you were yet in doubt, while you were yet questioning whether anything happened, while you were yet the worst of the worst, I came running to you by my own initiative to bring you back. And the glory of the gospel message at Easter is that the one before whom we are guilty and condemned has offered himself as the price to replace our guilt and his indignation with his righteousness and reconciliation. This is called justification. And please don't miss the basis of this justification because it's based on grace and is therefore a free gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't pay him back. All you can do is say yes and receive it. Verse 24 says, And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Here is what God did. In seeing that you were helpless in your sin and that you were helpless with the guilt that you're struggling with, knowing there was only one price that can be paid, he took you that deserved the punishment and replaced you with the perfection of his son, Jesus. He put forth Jesus to pay the penalty for you. Somebody had to pay the price because the price was perfection and you and I don't qualify because none of us are spotless. All the secular efforts to deal with the misery of guilt are impotent. 
because they ignore this fact. God's holiness and righteous glory have been desecrated and defamed by our sin. And there can be no justification, no reconciliation, no cleansing of our conscience unless the holiness of God is honored and the defamation of his righteousness has been repaired. And the urgency of our problem with guilt is not that we feel miserable, but that God's name has been dishonored by our behavior. We live in a day with such an arrogantly inflated view of human goodness and such a miserably tiny view of God's holiness that we can barely understand the real problem of guilt in our own sin because we think we're all right. But the real problem is not how can God be loving and yet condemn people with such little sins? The real problem is how can God be righteous and let us with sin into his heaven without having the sin penalty paid? There can be no lasting remedy for guilt that does not deal with God's indignation of sin against him and him alone. In verse 27 and 28, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This gift of justification only comes to those who trust in Jesus. That's why he had to be the sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice, but the sacrifice of the Son of God himself. No one else and no other act could repair the defamation and damage done to the glory of God by our sins. But when Jesus died for the glory of the Father, satisfaction was made. We recognize in that moment that this past Friday celebrated a grand transaction between the Father and the Son. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and all of our sins, past, present, future, were placed within him, his words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the ugliness of who we are without him, the Father turned his head. And moments after that, Jesus declared these great words, it is finished The price has been paid. We have hope because of Jesus and what he has done for us. And so the call of Easter is to turn away from the intellectual and the physical and the religious tactics that's used in this world to evade its guilt and to simply rest in Jesus and his finished work alone. Because Jesus, when you receive him, removes your guilt permanently. So do you want forgiveness and release from your guilt? Then look to the crucified, buried, and risen Son of God. Look to him who rose victoriously, and you will find freedom and peace, and the question of your guilt will be answered. Finally, we answer the question of death. The death of Jesus Christ means the death of death itself. Quickly, there are four things, at least four things, that death is mentioned at in the Bible. Number one, it's mentioned as a curse. It tells us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, or in verse 17, it said, But you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will surely die. In other words, if you disobey me, death will become the curse to you. Second, we know in Romans 6.23, it says, Death is a wage. We recognize that without Jesus, 
and everything that he has done for us, what we have earned in our life because of the defamation of his righteousness has earned us death. Third, it says that death is an enemy in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. In fact, it talks about it, death being the last enemy to be destroyed. And fourth, death is agony. In Luke 16, verses 23 and 24, there's the account that's given that in hell, where he saw he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away. And with Lazarus by his side, so he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now we understand why people fear death and while fear of death and why it holds them in change because who wants to face the curse of God's judgment? Who, who looks forward to God repaying them for their sins? Who welcomes defeat at the hands of a ruthless enemy? Who longs to experience unending agony? So we fear death. We kick against it. We do everything in our power to hold it off as long as possible and to push it back. But when Jesus died and rose again, he changed the outlook of death. He took away its power. He took away the fear that it creates. The last words used to describe death's power over God since the resurrection of Jesus Christ are different than the words that we used before. Now we use words such as this that's found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed to be his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel of the power of God, who has saved us, called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace, the grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, and listen to this word, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Acts 2.24 says, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it is now impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. What we once feared. The questions that we've always had changed on Easter Sunday morning, and now death has been destroyed. It's impossible for it to hold you, and it's been swallowed in victory. Oh, hallelujah, the questions that he answers to us. So Easter is God's way of saying to you, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you enough that I pursued you when you had a spiritual curiosity. I loved you enough to offer my son to pay the penalty for you. And when he died, death is destroyed. Satan at one time had held the power of death, but it no longer belongs to him. Sin has no more mastery over us, and guilt cannot hold us any longer because of the overwhelming victory of Easter and what Jesus has done for us. In fact, Paul as he looked back on what Jesus did, he begins to describe death almost mockingly and singing when he says things like this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, you don't even have a sting anymore because of the victory that Jesus Christ has won for us. And as a result of that, 
we know those who receive Jesus as Savior will one day get to walk in heaven, not because of anything we did, but because of what he did. I'd like to conclude with this one-minute video of a man that we all love and respect as he talks about heaven. At age 92, and I was fortunate to go to your 90th birthday, but at age 92, do you have hope for the, for the world, for the nation? How, what kind of hope is it? I have a tremendous amount of hope uh, because I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And I believe he's alive right now. My wife is already in heaven. I look forward to seeing her definitely in the near future because I'm 92 now and I know that my time is limited on this earth. But I have tremendous hope in the fact I'll be in the future life and I'll be there because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross and by the resurrection. And this gives me a great deal of hope. Just a couple of weeks ago, he walked through death's door without any fear, and he walked into the joy of a resurrected Jesus. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me this morning. The way I'm going to conclude this service this morning is this way. In just a moment, I'm going to ask all of you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, is this your day to finally have your questions answered? And then when I get to the response time, I'm going to simply ask that you would just lift your head and look at me, and by that I'm going to respond that I agree with you. We don't have room this morning for everybody to come and stand around the altar here, but what we're going to do at the end of our service is have our altar workers stand against the wall so that after you respond as we conclude this morning, you can slip over to talk to one of them about what it means to be without doubt and to be without guilt and to not fear death because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if you'd bow your head with me, there's five things you need to know about eternal life. Number one, Heaven is a gift from an eternal God that gave the gift of life forever in Christ Jesus. And because it cannot be earned or deserved, no amount of personal effort or good works or religious deeds can earn you a place in heaven because we are sinners and every one of us has fallen short of God's glorious standard. And because the penalty for the things that you have done wrong is death, because of your sin, it was a penalty you could not pay. So God in his mercy decided in his own initiative to chase you and to offer in your sin's place his son, Jesus Christ. It tells us that Jesus was the perfect, infinite God-man. Came to earth, lived a sinless life, but while he was on this earth, he died a substitutionary death for us. And that he rose from the grave to purchase a place for us in heaven. And this gift that he offers you today is received by faith. It's the key that opens the door to you, to heaven. And in just a moment, I'm going to lead us all in a prayer. But if today the Lord is speaking to you, I'm going to be starting over here on your left and my right. And I'm just going to ask if today you would like to receive Jesus. If you just lift up your eyes and look at me, and I'm just going to simply say, I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. 
I agree with you. I agree with you. As I move to the left center now, I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. Hallelujah. I agree with you. Moving to the right center. I agree with you, ma'am. I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. I agree with you. Are there others? I agree with you. Moving over to the far right and into the overflow. Is this the moment I agree with you? That the Lord is knocking on the door of your heart? I agree with you, sir. I agree with you. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask that you would repeat after me a prayer today. And if you have felt the knocking on your heart but you did not respond, I want you to know that if you will pray this with sincerity, it will be an eternally life-changing moment for you. And so please, I invite you to repeat after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gift of eternal life. I know I'm a sinner and I do not deserve eternal life, but you loved me, so you died and rose from the grave to purchase a place in heaven for me. I now trust you alone for eternal life, and I repent of my sin. Please take control of my life. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I think Jesus deserves a round of applause this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Do you know that the Bible says that when one comes home that there's a celebration in heaven? There's something going on up there that we can't see yet, but I know that the scribe of heaven who's writing names down is really having a hard time keeping up. So great and glorious is this day. I'm going to ask that our altar workers please step out and begin to make their way to the walls. And as I conclude in just a moment, I'm going to ask those of you that responded today, would you please not leave until somebody can acknowledge the decision that you've made this morning and we can help you in the journey of growth. This is a great life to walk together and every one of us has come because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in our life. So Father, on this Easter Sunday, we give glory to your holy name. We recognize that you dealt with the questions of doubt. You dealt with the issue of our guilt. And the things that we have feared the most in this life, we no longer fear because you've taken away all its power. And today, everywhere we go, may we declare with joy that our Savior, the one true relationship that any man or woman or child can have with the one true God has been given to us because of the finished work of Jesus. We receive it and we rejoice in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.